Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So what do you need to be thinking and doing to get your spots ready in time for deer season? On this episode, I'm going to give you a checklist so that you can get everything done with time to spare. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the New Hunter's Guide, the podcast and YouTube channel, helping new hunters get started and helping active hunters learn new things. And today we're talking about preparing and getting things ready for deer season. What do you need to be thinking and doing to make sure that you get everything done and wrapped up and put together in time so that your spots are ready to go? Because most hunters, especially new hunters, they tend to be late to the party. They're not even thinking about spots until, you know, they're starting to get their gear prepped to go out the next morning or the day after. And then they start wondering, okay, where am I going to go? And they start picking out areas. Um, and really what they're doing is they're scouting. They're not really hunting. They're going to scout areas um, during the hunting season. And of course, sometimes, you know, that can work, but that is absolutely not the way to have the highest chance of success or consistent success by any means. So what you want to do is get your spot ready in advance. The further in advance to a degree, the better. How far in advance? When do you plan the hunt? Pick that day. Put it on the calendar. Count backwards 30 days. By that 30 days before, you should have everything done so literally for the last 30 days, the only thing you can do is ponder and think, maybe check a trail camera or two and decide where you're going to go out. Or if you've only got one spot, you just think about how great that day is going to be. But you want to be out of the woods 30 days before you're going to go out hunting. And whether that's public land or private land, because you don't want to scare and spook out that spot you don't want to disrupt deer behavior activity and hinder the chances that you might have to get game. Now, sometimes people say, well, George, you know, 30 days is way more time than for deer to resume their normal patterns after you spook them. Well, for does, yes. For young bucks, maybe. For mature bucks, no. That You really need good three, four weeks. If you spook one, whether you see it or not, whether you know you spooked it or not, or even whether it smelled you after you left and got spooked and you couldn't have seen it, 
they really can take that much time to reset their habits and to settle back into an area if they were there. So 30 days is the ideal optimal window. You should not go into the woods 30 days prior to when you plan to hunt for the only exception being a very careful, cautious midday camera check. So what do you need to do to get your spot ready? I got a 10-step checklist. Number one, which is pretty obvious, you need to pick a spot. And this is not the pick a spot episode. I've done many episodes in the past on scouting and how to pick a spot, what to look for, all of those things. Go back, listen to a bunch of those episodes. In fact, if you go to the website, newhuntersguide.com, you go to the deer hunting category, there is an entire section of episodes that I have pulled out and classified under scouting and what you need to know and do in order to get things ready for your spot. So this is not how to pick a spot. This is just you need to pick a spot. And you're going to do that by scouting. You're going to look at last season's trail camera info, if you have any. You're going to be looking at food sources, food plots, winds, whatever the situation is, whether you're hunting public or private land, food is going to play a part in that. Whether it's a naturally occurring food source or one that is man-made or man-influenced, and you need to pick your spot, figure out where is the best place for you to hunt of the options that are available to you. And ideally, you want to have two or three spots so that one, you can rotate during the season if you don't have immediate instant success at the first one, and two, so that you can hunt different winds. Uh, Almost no spot can you hunt with any wind. So you want to have some spots that are complementary. So whether it's a north wind or a south wind, an east wind or a west wind, you have a good spot that's ready to go that you can hunt. Two or three spots is ideal. So you got to pick a spot. That's number one. If you haven't done that yet, you need to do that. It's, there's no time. There's no way. There, there, it's never too early to pick a spot. I start thinking about and pondering this during the hunting season for next year's hunting season. Just taking everything that I'm learning, mid-season trail camera data, mid-season scouting, and realize, you know, a tree stand over there next year or a hunting blind over here in the future, this could be better than this spot that I have up or maybe I should think about adding another spot next year. And so year-round, whenever you're in the woods, that ought to be something that's on your mind. And if you're not in the woods, you ought to be in the woods thinking about that. Number two, food maintenance. Now, this is both for people who are planting or who are modifying existing food sources. You need to think of, there's, you can't think about this too early either, really. Um, but you have to pick a spot before you can think about the food in that area. And deer relate to food. Deer are going to move to and from food every day. Whether it's a main food source, whether it's a minor food source, whether it is just a pass-through grazing food source, any one of these can be good for creating deer movement and you want to ideally hunt that movement, not the food source, uh, though you certainly can. And the smaller the food source, the easier and safer it is to hunt it. But you need to be figuring out, okay, what needs done? Okay, you have to identify the food sources, first of all. That's part of picking your spot. You pick your spot by identifying movement 
And often that movement is going to relate to food or it's going to relate to bedding. But you need to know what food is in the area, whether it's natural, man-made, or man-influenced. And then you need to think about, okay, what needs done to this food source? Do you need to plant something? Are you someone with food plots? You know, if you're planting every year, you should have a schedule and a calendar. You should know when that seed needs to be in the ground. If you're doing clover or something that is recurring, then you just need to maintenance that. You may need to, to mow it. You may need to fertilize it. You may need to do some weed treatment. Whatever the case may be, you need to think about that in advance. Maybe you are pruning fruit trees, whether they're natural or ones that were planted, in order to increase yield. Maybe you're working on any number of things in the area to create cover, hardwood regeneration, hinge cuts, whatever the case may be, to provide browse um, or anything that deer may eat be influenced by, drawn into the area, or create a dependable movement pattern for. You need to think about that in advance. Because once hunting season comes, it's, it's all over. You're At that point, all you can do is think about it for next year. So if you need to do any food maintenance, and you may not, especially if you're hunting pub, public land and there's nothing you can do to change anything, then okay, you just need to find the food sources and understand those food sources and how they may change and relate to your season. So for example... Maybe you were hunting in an area that has a lot of oak trees. you got a lot of acorns. Well, oak trees often don't produce acorns predictably every year. Often they're on a two-year cycle. And every two years they may produce a great crop. And then the year in between they may have little to no crop. Some of that depends on the spring weather. Some of that depends on a bunch of other factors. Some of it seems to just depend on the tide. There doesn't always seem to be a rhyme or reason unless you're a deer biologist, or excuse me, a oak tree biologist. But the bottom line is go outside, take binoculars, find the tree, look at the tree, and see are there acorns growing. Because if there's no acorns growing in the summertime, you're not going to have acorns on the tree in the fall. So you need to look at and say, okay, this tree usually produces, these trees often produce, well, let's look at them this year. No acorns. Hmm. Okay, we may need to adjust our plan based on what's happening with the trees. Um, and that applies to any other kind of fruit tree or mast yielding crop of any sort. Number three, you need to select your tree or your spot. Now, before it was finding your spot, that has to deal with the area that you plan to hunt. Now you need to literally find the this, this, this single place that you are going to park. You need to pick the tree. Don't just walk into the woods with a climbing stand on opening day and be like, well, I'll just climb a tree and then we'll be ready to go. No. That is not how you be successful deer hunting. You need to pick that tree in advance. It may be the right plan to go in with a climbing stand and then climb that tree. But you cannot find and pick that tree out at oh dark 30 and expect you to have good visibility and good view and even know what side to climb and what the ankles are going to be. You need to get out there in advance. You need to pick your tree. You need to know exactly to the tree where you're going. If you're going to set up a blind, you need to pick your spot for the blind. 
now, if it's an existing spot, you already have a spot, you already have a tree, you already have a blind, then you need to do some maintenance on that. You should be climbing up there in the summertime. You should one by one, not all at once, but one by one, loosen all of the straps and then tighten them back down because the tree grows mostly in the spring and early summer. The tree's going to grow. It's going to get wider. The tension on those straps is going to get tighter. A lot of people don't like to leave their tree stands up uh, year round just because that, that tension can actually tear the tree stand apart. Some Oftentimes the tree stand will fail before the ratchet straps do. Um, but you, you want to get up there. If you're going to leave your tree stand up year round, and I do, you want to get up there and you want to loosen those ratchet straps and then tighten them down to the right amount of tension. Now, sometimes, you know, strats also the good time to remove any straps that just aren't serviceable anymore. Uh, they're getting brittle. They don't look good. They don't look safe, which is another reason I always recommend you use more straps than the tree stand comes with or calls for. Typically, when I buy a hang-on tree stand, it comes with one strap. One. Yeah, I'm not going to use just one strap ever because if that one strap fails then you die. Or maybe you have a safety line. Of course, you have to have a safety line, but then you're just hanging in a tree until what happens? No, if the tree stand must not fall down. That is tree stand hunting 101. So I will put a tree stand up with the one strap that it comes with, and then I will tend to use at least two more straps just for redundancy. And in certain stands and certain trees, especially if it's a two-man stand or something like that, I may use even more straps than that. But I've got three straps at least in every stand that I have. Any one of those three should be sufficient to support that stand. All right, you only need one, which means even if two fail, you still have one. But you need to get up there and you need to loosen them and you need to inspect them and see are they still good or should I replace them and then tighten them back down to the appropriate tightness. Don't just go year after year after year and not do this because your stand will eventually get destroyed and or your straps will break. Oftentimes when you're walking through the woods on public land and you see tree stands on the ground having fallen over, this is what happens. Somebody just left them up they came in on opening day to find it on the ground because for the last four years they did nothing and the tree growing literally tore the tree stand apart. Then the straps failed and then this broken stand fell to the ground. It didn't break when it hit the ground. It broke and then fell to the ground. And that's just a mess. So make sure if you leave a stand up, if you're going back to an existing spot and on public land, you ought not be leaving your stand on public land. In fact, in most states, I think that's illegal. But whatever the case may be, if you leave a tree stand up, go back in the spring or in the summer, loosen those straps, and then retighten them. And if you're going early summer, then loosen them and leave them a little looser than you need to. You can tighten them more if the tree doesn't grow into it. When you go back for your final check, uh, you know, 30 days before hunting season, when you're going to check your trail camera. So... Select your tree, select the spot for your blind, and of course, if it's a blind, make sure it survived the winter, didn't get crushed by snow or falling trees, it's still sealed, still waterproof, and it's not. Now is a good time that you can make any fixes to that, replace, whatever you need to do. All right, number four, 
set up your stand or you're blind. You're thinking, well, you know, how early is too early? There's no such thing. No such thing. February is a great time to set it up. April's a good time to set it up. June's is a good time to set it up. September's a little late, if, especially if your season starts in September. But get it set up, get it on the tree, and you're ready to go. Number five, mock scrape. You got to set up a mock scrape. If I'm going to go through the time and the energy and the expense of setting up a tree stand or a blind or, or picking a specific spot after scouting and, and investing in there, I'm going to set up a mock scrape. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. And I've done entire episodes on mock scrapes. You can go back and listen to those. Uh, this is... You know, I want to say, oh man, this is a this is a deer hunting hack, but here's the thing: it's not magic. It just helps, and it costs almost nothing, and it only takes a few minutes, and it makes a significant difference year round. Mock scrapes don't create deer movement, but they focus deer movement. Mock scrapes give deer something to look at other than you. They give deer a reason to walk into and stand at the perfect place for the perfect shot from your stand. They are a good tool. They will not just draw deer from a mile away. That's not going to happen. They're not going to draw deer from 100 yards away. But they will focus deer movement. So where they may have come through a general area the size of an acre... They will more often than they would have otherwise come to this specific point, pause, sniff, lick, and then go right into your freezer. So I always set up a mock scrape for every spot that I have. And I don't, I never do a mock scrape unless it's a spot I'm going to hunt. Because the more mock scrapes you have on a property, then the less effect those mock scrapes have. You're just diffusing them. You're giving deer all these things then of interest to visit. So they're less likely to come to the one you're sitting at. But if I'm going to put a stand up, if I'm going to put a blind up, I'm going to put a mock scrape up. Number six, trail camera. If I'm going to put a blind or a tree stand and a mock scrape, I'm going to put up a trail camera. Because that is going to be my intel for that spot. Now, you can get a really good trail camera. You can go and... And my favorite ones going right now are the Exodus trail cameras. And they run, you know, upwards of $200 to $300, depending on what model you get. They come with a five-year warranty. They're a great piece of machinery. And uh, they're going to be just outside of the price range for most new hunters. 
So in addition to using Exodus trail cameras, I also use Brand X Amazon trail cameras. And I could put one in the video description and I could send you there and, and put you there, but here's the bottom line. They, they pretty much only are on Amazon for a year. Then the company puts a different package on them, renames them something else, and they get relaunched basically as a different trail camera. It is a trail camera industry just conspiracy of nonsense. And if you've listened to people who are in the trail camera industry talk about this, it's so deep and so ridiculous and so crazy and just such a mind-boggling, frustrating industry, what most companies do. Um, it just, you know, it makes you go crazy. But I don't pay any attention to any of that anymore. And uh, I'll go and I'll find me a trail camera in the $50, $60 range, hopefully on sale. I'll get one that has no glow or low glow flash. You do not want infrared. You want no glow or low glow because that is going to minimize any, uh, any disruption to the deer, especially bucks. You want something that is water resistant. You know, if it's going to be in the woods, it's got to be waterproof. And then ideally you want something that has at least a one year warranty, if at all possible. Um, my experience with cheap trail cameras has been this, guys. Cheap trail cameras, they're cheap. They can break. They can just stop working. They can be terrible. But here's what I've learned and here's what I want to pass on to you. This is worth the price of admission, if nothing else. Trail cameras that are cheap and suck and fail, they will always, well, not always, they will often fail quickly. All right, they will often fail quickly within a couple months. If they're going to fail, they're going to fail. I've had a couple cameras. One lasted, I don't know, three weeks. Another lasted six weeks. And then they just, they're just useless. They're garbage. Um, but if you have a one-year warranty or at least a six-month warranty. I then took one of those. Hey, it was still under its warranty. Sent it back. They got gave me a new one. That new one's been working great for a couple years. So you need to get something that has a warranty if it's going to be cheap. It's got to have some kind of a warranty and then get it set up immediately. Don't wait a year to put it up. Don't wait six months to put it up. Get it set up quickly to see if it's a dud or if it's a good one. And if it's a dud, you just send it back, get it replaced. If it's a good one, then, you know, you, you, you've made a good investment for your, for your low price. I prefer the Exodus trail cameras, but they're expensive. So I also use some cheap internet trail cameras from Amazon that are brands that don't make any sense and won't exist a year from now. In fact, the ones I bought probably aren't even there anymore. They're probably repackaged and rebranded with a slightly different case um, with all new super duper features, but it's the same camera. Regardless, just make sure you got a warranty. Get your trail camera set up. The ideal position, and I've done whole episodes on this. You can go back and look at them. Is that you want to have the trail camera just a bit above head level with a little bit of a downward angle pointing to the focus of the tip of that mock scrape so that every deer that comes by and touches that mock scrape, you've got trail camera footage of. I prefer video instead of photo because that lets me see where did the deer come from, where are they going, what's their demeanor. 
I can learn a little bit more about that interaction than I can just a still photo, you know, every so often. Uh, but get a trail camera set up because here's the thing. The trail camera will let you know if your scouting was right, if that really is a good spot, and more importantly, when the deer are there. Are they, deer, are they there every day in the morning? Are they there every day in the evening? Are they there every day at noon? Are they there every couple days at certain time? It will let you know when the deer are going to be there so that you can best time your hunt. But it will also, more important than all of that, just let you know, are they around? So I run my trail cameras year round because I'm also a turkey hunter. So as soon as the deer start to drop their antlers and the trail camera images are no longer useful, um, then turkey season is, is on its way in. So then I'll use the trail cameras for scouting for turkeys, often many of the same locations, just sometimes with adjustments in positioning to pick up turkey movement more so than deer movement. But get them out there. And how often should you check a trail camera? My recommendation is about every two or three weeks and check it in the middle of the day. So for me, I'll go out on a Saturday around noon and I will go and check all my trail cameras. I don't have that many on that many properties. I can do it all. Um, you know, within an hour or two. And so I will do that up until my last check is often a week or two weeks before the season starts. That's the last time I'm going to get out there and then I'm just going to do nothing until opening day. But you, checking them every week is too much. It's more than you need. It's more than matters. And it, you're just increasing your risk of, you know... Um, you're increasing your risk of spooking deer. Checking them less frequently, like less than once a month, all kinds of things can go wrong. Okay, so sometimes you may fill up a memory card because one deer stood there for five hours and and a thousand videos were shot of it. And now your memory card's full and you didn't get any of the last three weeks worth of footage. Things like that can happen. If the camera dies, the batteries die, if the camera breaks, then you've maybe lost an entire month's worth of footage and you go to check your, you haven't checked your trail camera in three months and you go the week before season starts and you find, oh, I don't have any data from after the first week after I set it up. Well, that's a bad time to figure that out. So every three or two or three weeks, I find to be ideal, mitigates risk, keeps me from having to go out every single week. And then I will check that last at about a week before the season starts. Number seven, removing or relocating debris. So stuff is going to fall. Branches are going to fall. Trees are going to fall. All kind of stuff is going to happen. You're going to have debris all over the area. I like to go and I just do this once a year, often in the summertime. And I will move and relocate debris. So I will move it out of the movement trails, out of the movement corridors. I don't want deer hindered coming through there. I will often relocate debris, fallen branches and trees and things, to uh, places that will hinder deer from going certain routes. So for example, one of the main places that I'll hunt is um, on a you know tenth of an acre clover patch that I've got planted. And there's several ways in and out of that clover patch. Several of those ways are in perfect bow range. A couple other ways 
are out of bow range. They're just too far. So two of those ways coming in, I can't do anything about. But on the other side, I can. So what I make sure to happen is deer could come in to that area from a dozen different ways. But if they came from the right and they want to leave on the left, if they're just crossing through, I block off the exits that are outside of bow range. And they still have three or four ways they can exit, but to exit those, they've got to come within range. So they may start out of range, but then to leave, um, you know, because deer never just come in. Well, shouldn't say never. There's never a never. Deer may come in. They, they rarely come in from one spot and then just turn around and walk back out or leave in a similar direction they came from. They're going to cross. They're going to leave at an angle. So the way I set it up is they either have to start within range and then leave or they have to start out of range and then leave within range. So I purposely block off a couple different potential exit points. I don't block them off like making a 10-foot wall. I just put enough debris and rubble there so that it, they're discouraged. It would have to be hard for them to push through or jump over or get through that. And I don't know, 19 times out of 20, they will not do that. They'll go through one of the easy ways to access. So... You want to remove debris that would hinder deer from being on the trails and paths you want them on. And then you may want to relocate some of that debris in order to minimize their options so that you can try to get them and move towards right where you want them to be. Number eight, which is similar, is creating cover. Cover is very important. So if you're on private land and you can take down trees or you can plant... Um, that's something you can do. There's a couple different ways to create cover that is cost effective. Number one, you may want to do hinge cuts. Not always the best option. Um, number two, you may want to just take down some canopy. Just cut down some trees. You cut those trees down, sunlight will hit dirt. When sunlight hits dirt, cover grows. So you can create cover just by creating sunlight and letting it hit dirt. Maybe you want to plant some cover. You want to put some switchgrass in. Something that's going to grow up five, six, seven feet high and produce some good screening and some good cover. The deer can hide in. They can separate them. They can feel hidden whenever they're walking around or coming through an area. You want to have cover. When you're on public land, it's a lot harder to create cover. Um, often, most states limit you what you can do, what you can't do. So you can't really create cover. You have to find and use cover. You have to see what's naturally available. And, and that just means more scouting. Now, public land hunting, a lot of people, they hear episodes like this and many other ones that I've done. And they think, oh man, you just it's so much harder to hunt in public land. It just Your chances of success are lower. There's so many fewer things you can do. Well, no, actually, that's not the case. Public land requires much less work to hunt and be effective on. But what it does require is much more scouting. So on private land, you can work year-round to manage that habitat and make that place perfect for deer. Public land, you need to scout and find those places that are perfect for deer. And once you've found them, you don't have to do anything. It's less work. It's less hours invested 
But what people don't do is realize I have to actually work and put in work to find those good spots because it is work. You know, if, if you're going to put in days and days of work on private land to make it a good hunting spot, you may get away with a quarter of that time on public land, but you still have to invest that quarter of that time on public land to find those spots, to scout, to do cameras, to, to do whatever you can do in order to lock in those good locations. And people tend to just go out for half a day, find a spot that looks all right, and that's where they're going to hunt. And then when they don't get a deer, it's the game commission's fault. It's all the other hunters' fault it's because of all this hunting pressure. They're not putting in the time and the energy and the work to find really good spots. When Whereas for private land, uh, it takes a lot more energy, a lot more time, a lot more work, a lot more money, um, but you, you do get good results in the end most of the time. But you have to invest at least a portion of that in order to be successful on private land. There is no free lunch. There is no just walk out on public land, do nothing, and have great success every year. And if there ever was, that was an anomaly. That's just not the way that it works. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. So, number nine, trail maintenance for deer. Trail maintenance for deer. So, one thing I do every summer, I will go out and on the various properties that, that I've got set up, I've got trails, like some of the ones I just mentioned. Some are just natural trails. You know, whatever happens, happens. Others are trails that I have intentionally and purposefully cut so that deer can move across the land easier, so that they can move through heavy cover easier, that they can have cover while moving, and that they can end up right where I want them to end up also makes it a lot easier for me to navigate the property and walk through the property and scout and look for sign and hunt turkeys. So the trails have multiple purposes and reasons. Once a year, I will walk my trails with a weed whacker, with a rake, with some clippers, if needed a saw, and I will just keep those trails clear. I will Now, why do I weed whack trails through the woods? I weed whack them because all kinds of crazy jaggers and multi-floral garbage with spikes and just stuff that's terrible is constantly trying to grow up on these trails, especially in my area. I don't care about the weeds. The true weeds, they're not going to be there come hunting season. And even if they are, the weeds aren't mattering. They don't hinder deer. The weeds are irrelevant. They die every winter. I don't care about the weeds. I don't care about grass. But when I use the weed whacker, I kill all this multi-floral garbage and everything else, little trees and things that it would try to grow up in the middle of my trails. And I'm able to keep all of that out with just one trimming a year. And then any trees that have fallen over, I'll drag them off or cut them up, get them out of there, 
Anything else that needs done, it needs clipped or trimmed. I'll do one time through maintenance on my trails once a year. I can typically do all of my trails in an afternoon or two, depending on you know, what has fallen over and what has happened. I usually do that maybe sometime around June after you've had full spring green up and everything that started to grow is going to grow. And then go through there with that weed whacker and just before it's able to get big and thick, I can just use regular weed whacker and get rid of most of it. So you want to think about any trails you need. Now in public land, all right, you probably can't go that far, but you can go through trails. You can move logs that have fallen over. You can pick up big branches. You can get those out of the trails. Very similar to what I talked about previously. Next one, number 10, access maintenance for people. All right, this is different. You had trail maintenance for deer. Now this is access maintenance for people. So when it comes to trail maintenance, you're, you're trying to make it so that the deer can easily navigate the trails and be where you want them to be. When it comes to access maintenance, this is whatever you need to do to be able to get to your stand quietly, easily, quickly, and leaving minimal scent trail. So what I will tend to do is I will go out and I will, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna go out with a rake and just clean off and try to get every leaf and every twig and every everything, you know, off of the entire walk-in trail. Um, because what happens is new stuff comes down and leaves are constantly falling. You know, going out with a leaf blower or something like that is just overkill. But what you need to do is make sure that you can walk in to your spot quietly, quickly, and leaving minimal scent. So I'm going to remove branches. I'm going to remove jaggers. I might have to weed whack part of it just because of all the garbage that's growing up. If I'm going through, you know, undercover uh, or thick leaf cover and, you know, there's not a whole lot of stuff growing on the ground, I'm just going to make sure that any fallen logs or branches or those things are out of there. I'm going to walk that trail in and out and I'm going to walk it as if I'm walking in to hunt. All right, I'm going to think about all every step, every area. Is this too loud? What can I do? Am I running over a bunch of, are there a bunch of twigs under the leaves that I keep stepping on? All right, let's get those out of there. Now, I'm not doing this, you know, weekly. This is a one-time thing that I will often do in the middle of the summer and just make sure that that area is clear. Now, there are places I can think of one that I go to that, all right, I may actually weed whacker mow part of that walk-in trail. Not for noise, but for scent. If the grass is low, if the weeds are low, if they're switchgrass or whatever, I mean, just I'm just talking about cutting a narrow, narrow two, three maximum feet across, just corridor that I can walk through without just brushing through stuff, you know, up to my chest. That's also good for ticks keep more ticks off of you. But the biggest thing is I just don't want to brush everything with my hands or legs and everything and just leave scent behind. So I'm maintaining my access routes. I'm maintaining my ability to get in there quietly, quickly. And biggest one, I think, well, you know, quiet's probably the biggest. Second biggest one, though, is minimizing the scent that I leave behind. Um, I do use some scent elimination sprays. I use a Lima Shield. They are not a sponsor. Um, I find that that helps 
Uh, but I use it just spraying on my boots so that when I walk through an area, I'm minimizing my scent signature. I'm not trying to mask my scent when I'm in the stand. That does not work. Uh, maybe to a small degree it helps, but what works is the wind. So you play the wind well, and then all you need to worry about is minimizing that scent signature into your stand or into your blind. And I have had many, many times deer walk right across where I've walked in and they, they don't do anything. They don't change their temperament. They don't change their speed. I've had them walk with their heads down, just sniffing the ground and cross right over where I walked in and, and not even lift an ear. And then I've had other times where I wasn't paying attention or I wasn't careful where before I started using sprays or before I started, you know, thinking about these kind of things and then deer would walk right up to where I walked in, smell it and they're gone. And so it does matter if you can keep the brush low, if you could keep the weeds and the grass low and that place where you're walking in and you, know, you don't have to use a spray, but if you can keep your boots from any scent getting on those. Um, you know, just how you put them on. Don't grab where your feet go, right? Grab up higher. I will wash my boots occasionally so that I get any other, you know, because I use my boots throughout the year. I use them for all kinds of things. So before deer season, I'll give them a good wash, let them dry well. I'm not using any kind of scented anything when I wash them. Um, and then I'll hit them with a limb shield and then I'm ready to go. So you have to act, maintain your access in order to have less disturbance on deer. And here's the bottom line, guys. The less pressure you have on land, the less scent you leave behind, the less you're disturbing deer, the less they smell you and notice you, the more you're going to be able to hunt that property, the more frequently you'll be able to hunt that property, and the more success you can have on that property. If you're careless and you don't care about the wind and you're leaving scent everywhere and you're just pushing off deer, then you get half of a good sit. And then for two weeks, you know, the deer either off that property or they've magically gone nocturnal and you don't know why it's probably the game commission's fault. And what are you going to do? So you got to make, you got to manage your access. You know, years ago, I didn't know about these kind of things and I would walk all through an area and then eventually decide to sit down and, and hunt there, maybe get up a couple hours later and walk around and peek around and didn't realize everywhere I was walking, I was basically turning that into a non-deer zone. And nothing was going to walk through there within the next couple of hours uh, because of all the scent I was leaving everywhere. Just didn't, just had no idea what I was doing and never had any success when I was hunting like that. So you got to change your tactics. You got to use the wind. You got to be mindful of these things. You don't need to spend money, but you have to be mindful. You have to invest mental time, energy, strategy, change what you're doing and make adjustments. And like I said before, a lot of these things have less effect on does and young, young bucks, but on mature bucks and mature does to some degree, it has a much bigger effect. The older and the smarter the deer, man, maybe smarter is not the right word. The older and the more experienced the deer, the more wary, the more cautious they're going to be, and the more easily they can be put off by smell, by sound, by all, all sorts of things. So you want to be careful. You want to be cautious. You want to be mindful. 
but you got to find your spot, right? Pick your spot, maintain the food, select your tree, set it up, put up a mock scrape, put up a trail camera, remove debris, create cover, maintain trails for deer and do access maintenance for you. And then you are going to maximize your chances of being successful in any spot this coming hunting season. Guys, I hope this is helpful. Check out the website, newhuntersguide.com for all the other episodes on deer hunting. Would really appreciate it if you went to iTunes and left a five-star review with comment purely because it helps the algorithm and enables this show to reach more people. I really appreciate you. Till next time, God bless you and go get them in the woods. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.